Welcome to the Mindfulness of Singing, and I'm Denise, your sassy, spunky scientist. And I'm Tony, your bubbly, big-hearted flower child. Our podcast features practical tips and tools for a journey of transformation using the healing power of your voice. Each podcast, we will delve into the mind, body, and spirit connection by interviewing inspirational guests, sharing personal stories, and discussing the most recent scientific research. Tune in and join our community of mindful singers. Good morning, Denise. Hello, Miss Tony. I miss having you right here beside me. That was so nice last week. I know it, right? But I have to tell you that today, I'm really glad you're not sitting beside me for our guest because I'm afraid I would get your elbow in my rib cage or a little pinch pinch every once in a while because I do have some issues around our the topic for today. So it's probably better that we were not in the same room for this one for, you know, my nudge factor. Our topic today. Our topic is money, money, money. And our topic is the lucrative artist. We're having Brian Witkowski, mm-hmm. and what I meant you would jab me about is... I know, already. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> well, our listeners might not know what she... She doesn't go around beating me up, and in fact, anytime she does jab me, it's usually out of love. You just have to get past that, you know, and, and I know that. But in fact, I had a funny, interesting, not funny, but a situation around that this week about charging, and so... Brian Witkowski created the lucrative artist to help people like me and others (laughs) who struggle with charging and who unfortunately built a paradigm around the starving artist instead of the lucrative artist. And so uh, he has a great service to artists and he is background. He uh, performed in a variety of different genres in musical theater and art song. Uh, opera around the globe and he also achieved and got a degree a dma doctorate in musical arts because he wanted to teach on the college level and then later created the lucrative artist and so we're going to have him on today to give tips for charging what you're worth and uh, it's going to be very interesting did i is there anything else i wanted to tell you about him of course i've written lots of questions mm-hmm uh, I'll go ahead and tell you now that on his website, he has a beautiful five steps for a more empowering 2021 that I checked out this morning and it's a step-by-step process, but the pictures alone are worth a visit just to sit in it. it. It was really beautiful. And I guess that's all I want to say. I'll save all of my questions for when he comes on, but. Okay. The lucrative artist, Brian Witkowski. Right. Okay. All right, that sounds good. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, me too. Let's have him on. Good morning, Brian. What a beautiful setting you're in. Yes, indeed. Nice to meet you. Nice to have you on this morning. We're we're excited to chat with you. Yeah, you as well. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, Well, Denise, can I jump in? You know me. I'm so bashful about. I was waiting for you to do it. I know you have questions. I do. I'm the question lady. Well, before we get started, I do want to know a lot about you and your journey. I thought it might be fun to get our listeners involved right off the bat, too. 
So would you take us through your relationship with money exercise and put us to work right away, right off the bat? Okay, that's that's a great question. Basically, long story short, I got certified in a money mindset training to help people kind of understand how they relate to it with their life. It's kind of like a Myers-Briggs for how you'd actually characterize that relationship. And it's unlike having to figure out how to transfer, you know, translate different letters and names and words, you know, some of the other things. It's pretty straightforward, you know. You're either a ruler, a romantic, a maverick, there's celebrity, there's um, what, nurturer, there's connector. And then what are the other ones? It slipped my mind, maverick, that was one of mine. And long story short, it kind of gave me a chance to really understand my habits and my thoughts around it and how I compared to say my sisters and my parents and so forth. And so many fascinating habits that we kind of carry over from our parents and grandparents. And long story short, I more or less went through a financial journey after my father passed away where it's like i learned a lot of things the hard way even though i thought i was rich for a second being a singer you know and so then i ended up going down this journey and wanted to figure out you know understand that so i could help other people not make the same mistakes and also really you know we as artists and singers have a more empowered relationship with money so I take people through that assessment and then we start talking about okay how can you take these weaknesses that you might think is a weakness and realize it actually could be a strength like for example you know one of mine was being a maverick and so I'm willing to I'm not afraid to take risks and do things that might not necessarily be you know something conventional but at the same time you know I you know that's a good thing and a bad thing all in one you know what I mean and then my other top my actual top result was nurturer where I found myself just throwing money at all my problems you know paying for things and helping people and you know not taking care of myself so helping people really figure that out and you know compartmentalize all those things and really put everything in a more empowering perspective that's really the biggest thing, the, the perspective that's more empowering and finding that new way to look at things and make it okay to earn enough so you can have enough to actually do good in the world. Beautiful. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. And I, I think I wasn't completely clear in my question and all that makes sense and it's all really good to hear. I listened to a podcast where you actually had people do an exercise where they began to assess their own relationship with money. Yes. So, uh, is that something you can do for us? I should have sent you the assessment first, actually. That would have been fun. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. That's okay. That's fine. That, well, the, what I was referring to is just you gave the example I thought was beautiful to think of a relationship you have with somebody. And that's, you, oh, yeah, that, that exercise. So I guess there's so a, many relationship to money exercises. It's hard yeah. for me to ask very clearly. That's the one I was thinking about. Okay. Let me, I'll, I'll go through it right now. Like, just have your listeners. For right now, just think of someone you love, someone you care about, and write down all the qualities about that. And then, then think about, replace that with money and see where you still have the same thing. Because we all have, you know, a love-hate relationship with it. And sometimes we make bad decisions or we give into, you know, situations because we have this love-hate thing. And we kind of, you know, we avoid it. We let things happen. And, you know, sometimes, you know, stuff happens. So it's, you know, how do we change that perspective and put it in its place and not worship and adore it, but, you know, have honor and respect for it, but also treat it like it's a tool. And really, in the end, it's just a tool. It's not something that, you know, controls your life. But sometimes we feel like it does because we're not taught how to earn it. Right. Excellent. That's what I was referring to. Okay. Just, just to even think about immediately when you think of somebody that you love, all these positive attributes come up. And then if you change that name to money, it might not be the same for everybody. And I thought that was a good, quick way to kind of assess where you are. Yeah, yeah. that's that's very inter that's very interesting. I I um. So I'm I'm 
very curious about the fact that you went and got a DMA and you were going to teach in at the university. Did you, did you end up doing that or did you skip that? Well, no, I basically, my father's a professor. So I was, you know, more or less raised with those dreams of becoming a professor, just like him. And he got his doctorate in education. I saw him get his hood when I was seven years old and didn't really understand it back then, but I said, I'd get it in something harder. And I guess, you know, vocal music became what that was. And, you know, when I was a kid, you know, being the only boy, sometimes that makes you the default bad kid. So singing was one of my saving graces that kept me out of trouble. And I kept on doubling down in that and decided to major in music and wanted to prove myself, you know, as a performer and so forth. And then I went to grad school. And in some ways, I kind of did what so many other people do is you just go to grad school by default because you don't know what else to do with your career. And, you know, you have to wait for your voice to be a certain age before you can really, you know, do a lot of the, you know, great rep sometimes. So I basically got my doctorate and also was in a hurry to get it because my father, he had cancer and wasn't sure much longer he was going to live. And that was one of the dreams that I made come true for him. And I definitely don't regret it. And then I had a chance to teach collegiately and did a lot of different things, teach in private studio and did some other professional stuff. And then I got tired of trying to chase after the so-called tenure track job that we sometimes think is guaranteed once you get the degree and you want to do something else to help people. Yeah, that's great. That's beautiful. Uh, and, and so um, what was that like? I mean, I, okay. So I, I have a, I had tenure and at university of Toledo and I had the, the bright idea of, meh, this is, I'm tired of this. I think I'll go chase a tenure track position again. And, you know, that we could open that psychological can of worms up, but we won't hear. And, um, and so I left there and came to another institution and now I'm back on tenure track. I have a couple of more years, well, one more year and, uh, to do that. Um, but you know, what I discovered is that I didn't, I just brought the same issues with me, <laughs> right? Like I just brought the same, the same issues with me. It wasn't the place it was, well, we'll go with me. It's me. So, um, now I'm wondering, you know, do I really want to teach the rest of my working career? Is that really something I want to do? Uh, how do you talk to somebody about walking away from the security of health insurance? Um, you know, all the things that a t job, job security, although I will say that, you know, with universities being on fire, no one is safe. So, but, but, you know, seemingly job security, how do you, how do you talk to somebody about letting go of those concepts and fears and pursuing what they know they really would love to do? Yeah. You don't necessarily have to throw the baby out the bathwater and, you know, stop the job altogether right away. You know, it can be a, a process to, you know, really get to what you want to get to. And one thing I help people figure out is, you know, yeah, you have that safety and security, but there's no guarantee. We're kind of in a world now, especially with COVID, it just kind of rapidly made, you know, took, I guess, opened the can of worms even faster or something, if you will. So there are a lot of things where there's, we don't necessarily have all the safety and security in those jobs the way we're used to. So we can't be afraid to be open to those possibilities. But also as an entrepreneur though, you're your own boss. And as long as you are serving your ideal clients, your ideal clients will love you and you have security with, you know, that kind of a new community you can form. So there's a different kind of empowering perspective there, but it definitely takes a different kind of mindset and approach to it because you know you have to actually do the selling and you got to be your own boss and a lot of us were 
raised with these, you know, middle-class working class values where we basically, we hate bosses when we hate the idea of sales and so forth. So we're afraid to do it ourselves. So it's, there's a lot of, it's a mindset shift we have to not be afraid to take. Right. Uh, and I, I think for me, I feel like, you know, I work my butt off for, for an institution and, you know, put myself under a whole lot of stress to, to build a program, to recruit, to, to change the program, rewrite curriculum, all those things. And often have often teach in the summer or do offer some sort of summer program. And, uh, and I think, I think I real, I think I've come to the realization that if I had put in that kind of time and effort in my own, in my own um, venture, rather than an institutions that doesn't really care about me, then I, I'd probably be making like five times the amount of money that I am right now, you know, so I have kind of come to that conclusion, but at the same time, it is really hard to step out on faith, I'd have to say. Yeah. And it's really never too late. And also they're, you know, teaching what's not being taught that people still need to learn. There are a lot of people who are, you know, we have a lot of board retirees with the right kind of educational opportunity, whatever you can make a lucrative living, just, you know, catering to that kind of, you know, student base, as opposed to the traditional ivory tower students. Sometimes we get stuck in just trying to do the same teaching everybody else is teaching, forgetting that there's so many, so many other things people could, you know, benefit from that we could be of service in different ways. And, you know, we can you know, make a very decent, respectful living out of. That makes me think of something that you talked about uh, being of service and, and establishing value. It doesn't matter whether it's a concert or private lessons or whatever. And I wanted to um, quote something that I really liked. As long as the use value of your offering is greater than the cash value of what you will receive, you can charge whatever you want. And that comes from the science of getting rich by Wallace Waddles. I'm familiar with his, some of his things. And I, I thought that was really strong. Could you unpack that a little bit further too? Yeah, that's pretty much, you know, take a book, for example, you could, you charge $10 for the book. And if it gives somebody an idea that gets them a business going where they make hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're not wrong charging $10 for that book. And also if we just think of voice lessons, for example, the value of those lessons, sometimes we get stuck in that hobbyist mentality as far as we think we're, we're selling a commoditized hobby as opposed to, you know, something that can be a life, you know, impact long lifelong kind of learning impactful kind of thing where we're, we're not just teaching them how to sing. We're also giving them confidence. We're giving them, you know, a more developed voice that will carry over to other aspects of their life where they can actually make more money. And we're, you know, we're increasing their net worth in that respect. So we can't be afraid to realize there's so much more value than just, you know, the, the wiggling of the thyroid if you know what I mean. But sometimes it feels like that's all we focus on and we don't realize all the other aspects that, you know, don't always get quantified. Beautiful. You also mentioned too, and I thought this was really good in one of your blogs that when there's a high value for something, we take it pretty seriously. If we, if we're out of our comfort zone and what we're paying and that by denying someone the chance to be out of their comfort zone, we're kind of denying them the chance to stretch and grow too. That was just a different way to look at it because I think of the things that I've paid a lot of money for, I put a lot of value on. And if I don't treat my service that way, I'm kind of cheating them. Does that make sense? Definitely. We can't be afraid to charge more because, you know, there's just inflation, for example, you know, who knows if even what was the normal rate back in the last century is really was the inflationary adjusted amount of what it should have been way back in the day. You know, it's like, who knows how long historically we've been systemically undercharging and 
and also so many voice teachers were just given a default scholarship. Like, and you know, it's, it's on our own dime and it's not, we're not getting credit for it. And there's so many students who really don't understand the actual value of their lessons sometimes. So we can't be afraid to really communicate that value and, you know, also realize that if, you know, when we charge more, we're, we're actually empowering them to charge more too. So like when I, when I raise my rates, then my clients can not be afraid to, you know, raise their rates, for example. And then they also, I help them with figure out how to communicate their students that they too should like be getting a raise with their church gigs and their other opportunities that they have. And, you know, sometimes we need to, you know, it's a leadership thing where we can't be afraid to, you know, be a leader in that respect and then help other people find their way up as well. And eventually we can all, you know, have a rising tide lifting all boats, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I, I would love to end the, the um, con- concept that musicians, not just singers, but musicians are starving artists and that that's an acceptable and okay way to view us and to view, uh, you know, each other in a lot of ways. It's so yeah. ingrained. Do you have any story of somebody that you have worked with that has really overcome that from, I noticed you have a lot of different programs and way for pe- ways for people to connect. Would you say that, I'm asking several questions at once. Would that's you fine. say that's a common thread, the starving artist, um, and have you seen people overcome that? Yeah, we do have, like, it's. it seems so weird that it's socially acceptable to fall into poverty for the sake of a perfect singing career than it is to actually get out of poverty having, you know, a self-empowered career, authentic career doing what you actually want to do. You know, hopefully we can change, you know, things from the former to latter someday. But, um, you know, I had one client, for example, who more or less was afraid, who's now that today's version of what she was paying hundreds of dollars for lessons for back in the previous, you know, 30, 20, 30 years ago. And we can't be afraid to charge today's inflationary adjusted equivalent and realize that you're offering that same value now. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we, especially a lot of us have had teachers who more or less, because they were tenured, they didn't charge the private rate that they probably should have charged. Like even when I was in college, my teachers mostly charged between 50 to 75 an hour for a lesson. And, you know, I was actually, I already had the mentality where I was expecting to pay at least a hundred and I was always shocked when they wouldn't charge that much. And then I finished my doctorate and I was at the same time only charging around that same amount as opposed to charging more that way, you know, so it's kind of, it's interesting how we deal with, you know, people, you know, lower rates and so forth. And we're, it's hard to, you know, was going to say, you know, it's, we have to overcome that, those habits and those, you know, lines of thinking and what everybody else is, we're used to be in charge and realize that, you know, what the actual value is and not be afraid to charge more. Sorry, I got a little rambly there. No, no, I, that's okay. I, I think a lot of the mentality is, uh, get started in, um, when you're young and you're a kid and your mom's looking for piano lessons or whatever. And they're like, well, there's a little old lady who lives a couple of blocks away and she only charges $20 a half hour, we're going to go with her. Right. And then, and so you, you grow up with that as a kid, if you're musically inclined, and then when you get to college and you're having to pay an accompanist, all the students are going, well, who's the cheapest accompanist? Like who, who pays, who charges the, well, I'm going to go with the person who charges the least. Like we just, we perpetuate that, um, mentality, uh, you know, it gets, it gets perpetuated because we don't, we don't, and I, when I say we, I don't mean musicians. We, as a society, as an American society, it's different in Europe, but in an American society, we don't value our 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 uh, local music teachers. We don't value music. We see it like, oh, you know, t-ball or soccer or whatever, you know, where 
somebody's volunteering to coach the kids and you have to buy a little bit of a uniform or whatever, and you buy a little bit of equipment, but it's something for the kids to do. And if they're good at it, great. If they're not, well, at least they're having fun. And, and, you know, we see music in those same ways as Amer- as Americans. I mean, this is my opinion. I, and, and anybody can tell me I'm wrong and I, you know, I'll consider it, but, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of that too. When my boys were little, you know, I was like, well, you play soccer and you play tea and I play, I pay money for all those things. And now I'm going to look for somebody to teach you guys either Suzuki violin or, or piano. And I'm going to look for somebody who's not going to charge me an arm and a leg. And I shouldn't have been looking at it that way. I should have been looking at it as who's the best artist in town and who's going to be, who's going to charge the most. And What's the value of the dollar that I'm giving? If I had thought of music in those ways, then I I, I feel like we have to kind of educate the American populace, uh, parents especially, who are giving lessons and paying for lessons for their kids. And really what's cheap is expensive. If you, you might get the cheapest price, but are you getting the right return on investment? Are you getting somebody who's really not qualified to teach and before you know it, you're developing nodules or something? And that's, especially now during COVID, we're getting more, hearing more and more stories about that, where some people, they pick such and such college because it's cheaper tuition, but then they could have gone, the other one that was more expensive would have been a better teacher for them and their vocal health and so forth. And it's just crazy, the stories that we hear. But mm-hmm. also, there's a, we can't be afraid to charge more because there, there's a people, there are people who will actually trust you more if you do charge more. Mm-hmm. And it is psychological, can, isn't it? Yeah. For sure. So um, it, can you kind of give us an example? Are, are, we, are we talking about strictly lessons, people who give lessons, or are there other services that musicians are stepping out and doing um, besides lessons? Not just lessons, also mentoring and other related kinds of you know, trainings and so forth. I know somebody who is a voice teacher or used to be a voice teacher and thought she was going to be a college teacher now does presentation coaching and helps people who are executives and other you know, high up level people like get confident in front of the camera and doing pitches and so forth to investors. And, you know, that's one where that's, there's, that's a very lucrative niche that there's always demand for. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people who are, they're masters at knowing their subject matter, they got all the good grades in school and did all the right things, but they're scared to death of getting in front of people and talking about what they do and, you know, selling what they're offering and so forth. So there's always demand for that kind of aspect. And then there's also just, you know, what's, what do people need to learn that's not being taught in school that still, they still need to learn to survive in life? We can't be afraid to look at those perspectives. Sometimes I like the joke that it seems like too many voice teachers have doubled down on being perfect at voice science when they should have been perfect at life coaching because that's what we, so many singers seem to need more. You know, there's only so much of knowing the anatomy is going to make you a better singer, whereas understanding how to navigate the, tra- you know, the challenges in life and frankly overcome a lot of the st- systemic problems we've had where, you know, we've had a generation of teachers who are just not all of them were all loving, let's just say, and we got to recover from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I learned, the, I learned the stuff that was being thrown across the room for me with my left hand while I held my music in the right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we've definitely <laughs> switched. Uh, the, the tide is turning in that area. No. Well, um, you have a number of ways that people, that you can help people become a lucrative artist. So why don't you brag a minute and tell us the different ways that people can plug in. In fact, you have a, I believe you have a session going down right now that's a group program. Tell us about the different things you offer. Yeah. 
Well, that's the enrollment for that's closed at the moment, but I basically still offer private clients and be offering one another group opportunity in the fall, possibly if the interest is there. But take people through the process of really brainstorming who those ideal clients are, because there's always a way to up level what your niche is and who you're really serving. And you can get you can refine it more and in a way where you, you can serve more people, but at the same time also zone in on those specific people that will pay you more because you're giving them exactly the right kind of value proposition and then figure out the right packaging of, of the products and services and how you'd price it and so forth. There's a process there to really understand the value and the different components that go into it and why you actually can charge more. There's always more to it than strictly paying the hourly rate we're used to paying like it's the previous century. And so figuring out those packages and products and understanding the truth of the value that goes into everything and then getting comfortable with sales. That's Sometimes it's, it's not the relationship with money that people struggle with. It's just their ability to do the selling and not being afraid to really, you know, name the price and overcome the, the jitters that you get by sometimes giving an uncomfortable dollar amount and realizing it's okay. And, you know, having a, you know, basically treating a sales process like it's an audition process is a stepwise thing you got to do to, you know, have the conversation in the right kind of way. So you're not, that you're actually, you know, you're getting them the clarity as to whether or not they're yes or no, you're not manipulating them and tricking people into just giving away the money. You know, sometimes we think that's what salespeople do and it's, you know, some do, but we don't have to be those kinds of people. So really that and then, you know, implementation and onboarding who you're serving so you can keep the clients for life and have something to offer and also brainstorming new revenue streams and other opportunities because there's always a new spoke you can add to the wheel with whatever your offer is. So I love helping people figure that out and feeling like they're more empowered to do more what they want to do and, you know, make it okay to earn more because they're serving more. So uh okay so <clears throat> let's say you have a person i have a question about this because let's say you have a person who's got a great offering like they like their offering is off the charts it's amazing it's so good and it's priced right and it's all the things now in order to and they're and they're good at sales like they they have their presentation down or whatever but how do you make sales if you don't have an audience to pitch to? Are we talking about you have to be on, on social media, you have to do it all through social media? And what if that person despises social media? What would you say to them? I would say at the very least, have conversations, you know, set up phone calls, get people you can talk to because really the real sales happen by building the relationship. And it's, you know, it doesn't matter how you don't have to have, you can actually have a business without a website or doing any social media, as long as you're not afraid to pick up the phone and talk to people and let them understand what you have to offer and do it that way. Like there, are, you hear so many stories about people who don't even have a website yet. And they're basically, they're making six figures, just selling their services directly to people. So it's possible. And sometimes at the very, have a minimally viable LinkedIn profile is helpful because that's where you know, on there compared to, you know, Facebook and Instagram and so forth, people are in a more serious mode and they might take your offering more seriously because they're going with a work mindset compared to on Facebook sometimes. But on the other hand, also build a Facebook group if you can with and a Facebook page, you know, slowly just invite people there and you don't necessarily have to do lots of videos, just share people's things and create a community where people can share things. And before you know it, more people start joining and Sometimes, even if you don't have any clients yet, you have this group formed and people think everybody else in the group must be your client. So they'll be your client too, all of a sudden. It's kind of funny how that works sometimes. So there are ways to do it without having to be that, you know, crazy person that does, you know, videos every day that seem to annoy you and you have to turn off your notifications for them. You know, there are other ways to do it than the traditional ways we think of social media and marketing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
That's encouraging yeah. to hear. Yeah, because I was describing me. <laughs> I caught that. And Tony. Tony doesn't like it either. And uh, she probably hates it more than I do. But I I really hate like having to plan my day around the fact that I have to post something today. And ugh, it's, it's it helps to get a VA, a virtual assistant or somebody to eventually like do the posting for you or schedule the posts, like do it all on one day where you get them all over with and then don't think about it. You know, there at least there are apps that make it easier, but yeah. you know, it's one of those things where you don't have to really stress about posting that much because your ideal clients aren't going to judge you based on that. You know, anybody who would pass judgment would never be your client to begin with. So it's not worth stressing over. Yeah, that, that, that's good. That's true. That is true. Funny. And you know what? I think more and more people are doing that, having somebody else. So are we really not even engaging with each other? This person's managing, they're the puppet for their business and this one's the puppet. So the people aren't even really. Sometimes you wonder that, yeah. You know, so. Well, you have to come up with the content though, Tony. I mean, you, you're the one who comes up with the content. It's just somebody else who actually does the technological thing. So you're still connect. I mean, I'm not making an argument for, I'm just saying it's, there's, it's not someone who's making up your content for you. No one can do that. Right. Uh, I mean, am I, am I correct, Brian? You yep. still have to create your own content content. And once you have some created, then you can reuse it. And before you know it, like, you know, what a, a blog post I made two years ago, I could just repost and people would still read it. Like it, you know, was read today or written today. And, you know, mm -hmm. there comes a point where you have enough content written it. You don't have to stress over making too much more. Mm -hmm. And then, it's also, I would say it's, it's okay to schedule time so that you're not actually always on it. That sometimes you, it feels addictive to be on the face on Facebook. And sometimes you get all these different likes and comments and so forth. And you get the notifications and sometimes I have to just put the phone away. That's really what, more what I was referring to Denise. It's somebody else was managing from the comments and the interaction, the likes you may create the content, but you may never even get on there if someone mm -hmm. else is managing all that for you. So that's what I meant. The puppet who is, doing is not even the person who's actually doing the business the interacting you create the content but you're not interact really interacting with the people that you're posting to maybe i'm wrong yeah it does help to interact a little bit but at the same time you know it's, it's not worth stressing over the right people have actual conversations pick up the phone set up zoom meetings like this and so forth and you know that's where the real beauty and the real value exchanges happen and that's where you can really build those client relationships and whatever you have to offer those people will that you actually talk to will be interested or they'll know who they'll get cleared in what you're offering and then refer you elsewhere so you know it can be a very good situation where you don't need to stress over the social media stuff that can sometimes it can be you know it is what it is it can get, get you kind of it, it can be anxiety provoking at times depending on what people post on facebook and like you got to put it away sometimes and keep it in its place <laughs> yeah that's right that's absolutely right so um, what would you like uh, our listeners to know about you and your services and how they might be able to uh, connect with you for, say, your future group course or classes? Yeah, so my, my website's thelucrativeartist.com, all one word, and I have a Facebook page. Of course, you can get in touch with me there at facebook.com slash thelucrativeartist. And if, if anybody in your audience is looking for an opportunity to kind of figure out how to take their studio to in a different or up-level direction where they can feel okay charging more or if they want to you know create some other kind of product or service outside the academy or something like that that's you know kind of where my wheelhouse is if you want and if you want to really figure out the money part feeling okay with charging more and you know being of service in a different kind of way and you know that's what i have to offer and so feel free to contact me my email address is brian at the lucrative artist.com 
So, and starting in the fall, basically be a group edition if I get enough interest where I'll be happy to, you know, take people through there and, and also offer, offer private, you know, spots too, where either three months or six months, I usually take people through doing a three month intensive where it's usually every week for three months or every other week for six months. And usually it's good to work in 90 days because like our, when it comes to your thought process and your habits of thinking around money and so forth, it kind of takes 90 days to really, you know, make a shift that's, you know, lasting in terms of how we relate to money and talk about it and talk about business and let go of those limiting beliefs that sometimes are stuck in our systems as far as, you know, business and money and so forth. Cause you know, you gotta, you gotta change your mindset and, you know, sometimes think differently from how we were raised, you know, in order to, to move on to the next level. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Brian, yeah. for spending some time with us today. Well, thanks for letting having us me. enjoy your, our conversation, but also your background. Yes, I've enjoyed the birds. I, yeah, I like to say no man is kept poor because nature is poor. That's actually it's a phrase from the Science of Getting Rich book. And so it's, it's always inspiring to be out in nature because you don't, trees don't think if they're growing too many leaves. Squirrels don't doubt that they're taking too many acorns. But we as humans, you know, we have you know, more complex psychologies. So it's good to be reminded, you know, of the freedom of nature sometimes. Very yeah. true. Yeah, beautiful. Lovely. Good thoughts. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for your time with us today. And um, we hope that our listeners will maybe reach out to you and see what you can do for them and their beliefs and thoughts around money. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Have a beautiful day. Thank you so much for listening. We are very grateful that you joined us today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, write a review, share it with a friend.